Good, good. I'm excited to, to be here this morning. Um, we're going to have a good time together in, in Jonah chapter 4. I want to show you a picture. Uh, this is a gentleman by the name of Travis Roy. And Travis Roy uh, came out of the womb wanting to play hockey. His father was a, was a hockey coach. He ran the local ice rink. And so since the time he could walk, he had a stick in his hand. He spent so much time on the ice. He probably learned how to skate before he ever learned how to walk. His dad was his hero. His dad taught him everything. So Travis practiced and practiced and became the best player in his area while in middle school and, and then went off to a prep school to play hockey and became one of the top recruits in all of the U.S. He had spent his whole life training to become a hockey player. He wanted to be the absolute best. When it comes time to, to pick a college, he decided he wanted to go to Boston University, which was a powerhouse for hockey. He wanted to go to the very best, and he could do it because he had worked hard. He was given some God-given abilities, and, and he honed the skill that he had. So Travis went to Boston. And he was 20 years old when, when he started his first season. And so the night before the first game, man, Travis is excited. He can hardly sleep. He's waited his whole life for this moment. Since he was a little boy, he said, I want to play Division I hockey. And all of a sudden, this is the night before his first game. He can hardly sleep. He gets up the next day, and he has the first day jitters. He's excited as he's walking to the stadium. He's talking to his teammates. He gets in the locker room, and he laces them up, and he knows that this is what he was made to do. He can hardly wait to get out onto the ice, and so... They go out and they warm up, and he sees his parents in the stands, and, and they embrace and they talk. And for his father and him, it was a sweet moment because they had worked for this moment for a long time. So the game starts, and Travis gets in on the first rotation, and so he skates in, and he goes to play defense, and he goes up against the defender, tries to slap the puck away. Just a, a normal check. And 11 seconds in, he runs head first into the board. And so Travis falls, and it looks like a, a regular fall, but when he tries to get up, he realizes that he can't get up. And so all of a sudden, paramedics rush out onto the ice, and they don't know what's wrong with Travis. His dad runs out while he's still on the ice and says, Son, what's wrong? And he looks at his father and says, I, I can't feel anything and my neck hurts. But then he looked at his dad and says, but dad, we made it. That was October 20th, 1995, 11 seconds into Travis Roy's dream. It all came crashing down. This is Travis Roy now. This is 20 years later. He's 40 years old now. Travis has never played another hockey game. Travis' dream to be a professional hockey player was left on that ice. But to this day, he still says that was the best 11 seconds of his life. And he goes on to say, man, I lived the first 20 years of my life on passion, 
I've lived these last 20 on purpose. Now Travis goes around the country and he talks to people that have been in something tragic, that have had their dreams snatched out of their hands. And it's his faith and his love for people that continues to get him out of bed each and every morning. See, man, I hope that if ever the rug is snatched from underneath my feet, I hope that my attitude can be like Travis Roy. Unfortunately for us, oftentimes, especially for myself, a lot of times my attitude is a bit too close to our boy Jonah. See, Jonah had a change of plans. It felt like he had the rug snatched underneath his feet. He was doing something that he just didn't want to do. He was angry about it. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 10 and chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, When God saw what they had done, referring to the Ninevites, and how they put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. And that's us, isn't it? That's me. I'm ashamed at how many times I've seen God at work and the plans have changed and I'm angry. I'm saying, I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I wanted to do. I had something in mind. That's not happening, so I'm upset. See, but Jonah, in the midst of this, he still knew the heart of God. He knew what God was like. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 2, it, it says this. It says, so he complained to the Lord about it. I mean, he threw a grown-up temper tantrum. He was mad. He said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. See, I knew that you were a merciful and a compassionate God. He says, I knew that. He said, I knew that you were slow to get angry and you were filled with unfailing love and that you are eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah knew the heart of God. And that was a part of his hesitancy to go in the first place. He didn't think that that's what he needed to be doing. And that's us. We know the heart of God because we've lived it. But we also know our own hearts, our recalcitrant hearts that are prone to wonder. And in just the next two verses, I mean, you just see how angry Jonah is. I mean, he's literally throwing a temper tantrum. He's saying, Lord, why don't you just kill me now? I think that's a bit dramatic. But he says, Lord, just kill me now. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, As a gentle teacher, is it right for you to be angry about this? So oftentimes, we give ourselves excuses. We understand why we fall short or why we need grace. I do it all the time. I say, okay, I understand how I fell short there, but I, I think I started from the right place or next time I'll do better. But when it comes to others, sometimes we are far too slow to extend the same grace we receive to others. Such should not be. And we've heard this story before. Some of you guys in here are New Testament scholars. And you know what Jesus talked about in the parable of the unforgiving yet 
forgiven, the parable of the ungrateful debtor. And you remember the story, right? Where there's a king and, and there's one of his servants that owes him some money. And so he, he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to need my money back. That, that wasn't a gift, that was a loan, so I think it's time for me to, to collect on that. And he says, hey, man, I, I don't got it. He says, I'm, I'm not good for it. I just don't have it. So he said, okay, you, since you don't have it, I'm going to have to sell you guys so I can repay what I've lent to you. And the servant gets, literally gets down on his knees and begs and says, please be patient with me. I will repay everything that I owe. He was moved with compassion. And he says, you know what? And don't even worry about it. All has been forgiven. You're free to go. Then that same man that has just had this large debt, if we were to make an analogy, it would be about $10,000 today, this large debt forgiven. He goes out into the streets, and he sees one of his boys who owes him some money. And he runs up on him, and the Bible says he chokes this man and says, hey, you owe me some money. I'm going to need that money back. I need that. And the guy says, hey, I don't got it. And when the king heard that, when this noble heard that, he couldn't believe it. Because this man was coming after pennies when he had just been forgiven thousands of dollars. That's us far too often. That's Jonah. See, Jonah was a monument of God's grace. When the Lord provided the well, it wasn't necessarily for his discipline. It was to save Jonah so he would not drown, so he would not sink to the bottom of the ocean. The fact that Jonah's feet ever touched the soil of Nineveh is a testament to the glory and the grace and the wonder and the favor of God. But how soon Jonah forgot. Far too soon. He could receive the grace, but, but he didn't want the Ninevites to receive the grace. Man, but as, as I was studying this, I realized that we haven't really given Jonah a fair shake. We met Jonah in the midst of his sin. So his autobiography to us, or his biography to us, starts in the midst of his sin. And I don't want my biography to start in the midst of my sin. We don't really know much about Jonah. All we know is that this man is running from God, so automatically we're judging Jonah without really getting to know his story. But I think the more we look at Jonah and understand who Jonah was before he ever decided to run away from God, the more we understand and humanize who Jonah is, and the more we realize that Jonah is a lot closer to who we are than maybe we ever dreamed to imagine. So here's just a few facts about our man Jonah. Number one, see, Jonah was a prophet from the village of Gath-Hepper, located just three miles north of Nazareth in Lower Galilee. I mean, this man was where Jesus would be from. I mean, he was in the thick of where the best Israelites were. He was a part of God's chosen people. He was a part of the elect. That was always his contest. Everything he thought about, everything he wanted as a prophet of God, he was thinking that it would be for God's chosen people. As an Israelite, you assume 
that you will be a prophet to the Israelites. In John chapter 5, verses 52, and the Pharisees got it wrong. They say, search and look, for no prophet has risen out of Galilee. He was a prophet, and he did rise out of Galilee. And I think uh, the comparison is striking, how later in the New Testament, Jesus compares himself with Jonah. He says, the Ninevites will testify against this generation because Jonah came, and he preached, and they repented. Yet I am a prophet who was greater than Jonah, yet you do not repent. Both of these men, Jesus and Jonah, from Galilee, right outside of Nazareth. Number three, see, Jonah really, really believed that he would be a prophet to the Israelites and not to the Gentiles. So I imagine when he gets this call to go and and proclaim what might happen to these Gentiles, it's just something that this brother did not sign up for. It was a change in his own plans. And then when we read through the Old Testament, Jonah is the only prophet whose ministry is entirely on foreign soil. He's the only one. Everyone else gets to relate to the home team and, and understands, and they can see themselves and the people they're addressing, and so you're, you're more, much more apt to give grace. But when you're dealing with the other, we're a lot slower. It's a lot harder for us to give grace when we're dealing with the other, those people over there. That's Jonah. That's you and me. But the question remains, man, why was Jonah so angry? Well, I think John Calvin, the great reformer, he wrote something that helped open up this text just a little bit more for me. It says, Jonah was grieved because Nineveh's preservation after his prophecy made him seem like a false prophet. It would make Jonah a demon, not a man to have preferred the destruction of hundreds of thousands of men rather than that his prophecy be set aside through God's mercy triumphing over judgment. See, I think the point here is that there's a couple things at play here as we start to really dive into why Jonah was so angry. Number one, I think Jonah as a prophet, prophets want to be right. Prophets want to say, hey, when I say something's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's what, that's kind of the the whole job description of being a prophet. It's real hard to be a prophet if everything you predict doesn't come true. So probably there may be just a hint of pride in there. But I think also Jonah was just angry for another reason. I think theologian Donald Fairbairn kind of opened it up just a little bit more for me as well. He says this, if Nineveh had been the prominent object with Jonah, he would have rejoiced at the result of his mission. But Israel was the prominent aim of Jonah. As a prophet of the elect people, probably then he regarded the destruction of Nineveh as fitted to be an example of God's judgment, at last suspending his long forbearance to wake up wicked Israel. But Jonah was bitterly disappointed, not from pride or mercilessness, but from hopelessness as to anything being possible for the reformation of Israel. I think the point of this is that God was really addressing Jonah's heart. He was so focused on his people, he had no room in his heart to extend the grace or the mercy to anybody outside of his group, to anybody that wasn't like him. It just wasn't in his heart, and so he didn't have it. And the Lord said, we've got to address that. 
See, Jonah thought, man, if I go to Nineveh and say, hey, you guys are going to get destroyed, and then God destroys them, I can go back to my people in Israel and say, hey, you saw what happened to the Ninevites. If you guys don't repent, the same thing is going to happen to you. See, there was this hope in Jonah's heart that through his dealings with Nineveh, his people would be saved. God had a much bigger plan. So Jonah was angry that his plan and his mission didn't quite align with God's plan and God's mission. And in Jonah's mind, all of a sudden, even the Ninevites, people who were Gentiles, who weren't a part of God's chosen people, were somehow elevated in his mind above the Israelites. They weren't repenting. They weren't receiving this grace or this favor from God. Jonah was angry because his plan and his view of God was far too small. Jonah had a heart issue, not a mission issue. You see, the heart of the matter, and that's what our talk this morning is entitled, the heart of the matter is that the heart matters. God has always been in the heart business. That's his currency. That's what he deals with. The heart of the matter is that the heart matters. It absolutely does. And this whole book is about Jonah's heart. There's only one name in this entire book. You have categories of other people. You have the sailors. You have the nobles. You have the merchants. You have the animals. But you only have one name, and it's Jonah. And this entire book is about Jonah's heart. If it wasn't about Jonah's heart, this book would have no fourth chapter. The fact that this book has a fourth chapter lets us know that God was all about Jonah's heart. Jonah couldn't see it. He was upset. But God wanted to deal with with his heart. It would have ended in chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, and the Ninevites repented and God relented. The end. But there's a fourth chapter because that wasn't the point of the book. That was the setup to get us to the real point that God has been pursuing Jonah's heart the whole time. See, Jonah was doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. It seems to me that this book is less about God wanting to use Jonah to save the Ninevites and much more about God wanting to use the Ninevites to save Jonah. And this whole time I thought, man, God must have really loved the Ninevites. He really wanted them, and that's true. And God was going to just show how wonderful he is by using this man Jonah who really didn't want to be a part of what God was doing, but I really think the point of this book is that God really, really, really wanted to work on Jonah's heart through the Ninevites. And we see Jonah in God's classroom in the latter part of this book. In Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 10, man, I'm just going to read. Right after the Lord says, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he had made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant 
and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed through the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And again, our man with weak resolve wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And we really see the real condition of Jonah's heart. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Jonah said, yeah, it is. I'm hot, Lord. He said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And that's an allusion to Deuteronomy passage. And, and that usually refers to people who, to children who are under three or four years old, who really don't know their right from the left. So in actuality, this number is probably closer to 600,000. This is just talking about the children and animals in this last verse. He says, if, even if I were just consider the children and the animals in the city, why don't you have compassion? Jonah was so zealous in his pursuit to carry out the mission of God that he missed the, the whole point. That he so badly wanted to do the right thing that he couldn't even realize that he was doing it for the wrong reasons. He had a heart condition that only God could fix. Now, I just want to throw some things at you to just to help us all consider maybe where our heart is. I think it's healthy to examine our hearts. The Bible constantly says, hey, you guys should examine your hearts time and time again. And so I just want to throw some things that if these things are part of your life, it is possible that you are doing the right things for the wrong reasons. If your actions at any point lead you to feelings of self-righteousness, if you are abstaining from something, and you say, okay, man, I've, I've arrived now. Or look at all that God has done in me. I used to be like that, but now look at me. If, if that's somewhere in your heart, it, it may be possible that you are doing the right thing before the wrong reason. You don't get to earn your salvation. That's what Jesus did. Now, you respond out of what he's done for you from a grateful place, and that is what is driving all of your actions. But at no point should there ever be this mindset that, man, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm getting there. Maybe I'm halfway there. If you fight for justice, which is a noble thing, but never hope for others to re experience grace and mercy, maybe it's possible that you're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And your zealousness to enact the righteousness and justice of God if you forget his heart in the process, if you're not really hoping for the others to experience the same grace and the same mercy and the same forgiveness that you have, if you want all justice and no grace, if you stand for justice but never sit in awe of the mercy of God, it is quite possible that you are doing the right things for the wrong reasons.
And if you say the Lord's Prayer out of obligation and not because you have a desire to live out what the prayer is calling you to, it is very possible that you are doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. It is true. God says, hey, when you pray, you should probably go ahead and say the Lord's Prayer. But if while you're praying that prayer, you don't really mean you want to forgive those like God is forgiving you. You're doing the right thing, but for entirely the wrong reason. God wants you to engage in that prayer because it's doing something to your heart. And this is by no means is an exhaustive list, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will deal with your heart in its own unique way. And then it is my hope that sometime throughout this week, it will start to gently reveal to you ways in your life, areas in your life where you may be doing the right thing for the wrong reason. But there's also a flip side to this thing. It is also possible to do the wrong things for the right reasons. For example, if your freedom in Christ keeps you from becoming holy and putting away sin, it is possible that you are doing the wrong things for the right reasons. It is a good thing to lay it all at the feet of Jesus, to say, I can never earn my righteousness. There's nothing I could ever do to put myself in a right position with God. That's the work of Jesus. But as Paul says, don't use your freedom as a pass to do evil because you know that God is forgiven, because you know that God is slow to anger. Sometimes the right theology can lead to the wrong actions if your heart is not in the right place. If you put your vote of confidence or faith behind anyone or anything that does not proclaim Christ through their actions, but do so because they carry out social reform and policies that you approve of, it is possible that you are doing the wrong things for the right reasons. You could be coming from a genuine place of really wanting to see some good things happen, but anything that is divorced from Christ, you should put no faith, no confidence in anything that is divorced from Christ. You've got to see Christ in it. When I see Christ in it, then I can say, okay, I can put my vote of confidence behind that. I can put some faith in that because I see Christ in it. And then if at some point when they come to arrest Jesus to crucify him, you steal a sword to cut off the ear of one of the men in the guard's company, it is possible that you are doing the wrong things for the right reasons. And that's what our boy Peter did. And so we've seen it before. Peter did the wrong thing for the right reason. He wanted to row with Christ. He said, I am running away. He says, we're not going down without a fight. Jesus didn't do anything. He went about it the wrong way, and so Jesus said, man, put the sword away and heal the man's ear. See, but there's, there's, there's only one. There's only one who's ever completely done the right things for all of the right reasons and never made a mistake. There's one in his name. Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life and he did all of the right things for all of the right reasons.
then he comes along and says, hey, because of your sin, because of your fallen nature, you won't be able to do all of the right things for all of the right reasons. And your heart is the reason why. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, there's this promise where God says, hey, I'm going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, place my spirit in you, and move you and compel you to keep my laws. That's what he says. He says, because you can't do this thing by yourself. There will be times where you do the right things for the wrong reasons, and sometimes you do the wrong things for the right reasons, but very rarely do we as Christians do the right things for all of the right reasons. And it's not because we don't want to. It's not because we don't have the desire to. It's because our hearts oftentimes have some evil things lurking in them, something that God has always been wanting to address. And then this this guy comes in and says, hey, I'm going to give you a new heart, and you're going to start to see some things differently. Even when you do the right things for the wrong reasons, at some point you'll be able to see that that was the wrong reason. And there's this gentle growth that starts to happen. Much like Jonah, he'll, he'll just probably do gentle things. He may ask you questions. Is it right for you to be angry? Or is it right for you to be puffed up about this? Is that right? See, God is a gentleman. He's always been a gentleman. He says, it's free if you want it. I won't force it on you. Here it is. All who are thirsty, come and drink. And he says, I'm the great physician. And you've been on my organ donor list for a while now. He says, I've been wanting to give you a new heart that you so badly need. And he says, come into my operating room and I will gently work on that heart. And as every surgeon starts every surgery with a good washing, I guess that may be a decent analogy for baptism. It's a good washing before God starts to really work and unravel our hearts. So maybe if anyone is here and and that's something that's on your heart, I think that's of the Lord. And today could be that day where you want to sign up and say, yeah, I want to be washed and I want that new heart since God is so concerned with our hearts. God has always been less concerned about what we do, much more concerned about who we are and who we are becoming. He wants sincerity. And then he says, but some of you, you have that new heart but you still struggle, and you realize that you're flawed, and you realize that there's sin in your life that you don't know how to get rid of. And so you want to lean into my purpose for your life, but there's guilt, and there's shame, and there's condemnation that is clouding you from what it is I'm calling you to. And he addresses that as well in Hebrews chapter 10, where he says, hey, just just bring me the heart. He says, draw near to me with a sincere heart, and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, all you have to do is bring me the heart. I'll give you a new one. And when it gets weighed down by the mess of this life, bring it to me and I'll wash it again. 
says, I'll do it again. That's, that's the promise that we have. That the only man who ever did all of the right things for all of the right reasons says, I want to give my righteousness to you. I want to help you look like me. You look like me when you have a heart like mine. So let today be that day where you just decide, you know what, God? I want what you have for my life. That new heart, I want it. There's mess and pain on your heart. If you're struggling to forgive somebody, if you're realizing this morning that you've done some right things for some of the wrong reasons or some of the wrong things for some of the right reasons and you want God to gently auto-correct you through the spirit that lives within you, today can be that day. So I want to end with us all saying a prayer together. And let's all stand together as we say this prayer. And this will be our prayer. And it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit really enlivens our hearts to this truth. And I'm going to ask if all of you will read this with me. Let's say it together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen.